You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Captain Randy Lee. Adaptability is the quality of being able to adjust to new conditions. In the case of EMS, it can mean adapting to an austere environment, changing patient conditions, or even being tasked to put your newly learned skills to the test. This was the case on December 8, 2022, when two people plummeted five floors down an elevator shaft at the Bronx Terminal Market. With technical rescue efforts underway, Lieutenant Shlomo Winkler, then Rescue Medic Winkler, and fresh out of medic school, paramedic Kira Watkins, had to become the definition of adaptability and provide patient care. These rescuers are with us today to give us the play-by-play of this event and provide some insight on their thought processes when operating on a situation such as this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here with you. As with the beginning of most of these podcasts, we like to get some insight about your job history. So if you would both just give a quick bio about when you came on the job, where have you worked, and where you're currently assigned. I got on in September of 2015. I was one of the last PTOP classes. My first assignment was in Harlem at uh, Station 16. I worked there for two and a half years before I went to rescue. Then out of rescue, I was assigned to Station 45. I was there for five years. I recently got promoted in March to uh, lieutenant, and now I work at Station 14 in the Bronx, right outside of Lincoln Hospital. Great station. Kira, what's your bio? So I got on the job March 2017. I was assigned to Station 49 in Astoria. I bounced between 49 and the Queens Tactical Response Group a couple times, and then I was in Medic Basic 31. We graduated September of 2022, and right after that, I was assigned to Station 45. This incident happened in December, and you came out in September. Yes. So you were two months fresh medic. Correct, yes. <laughs> wow. During the day in question, you were working on 4-5 Rescue, correct? Yeah. Yes. That, that was your regular unit? That's my regular unit, yes. You were the intern on that unit? No, so I'm regularly assigned to 4-6 Sam. My regular partner, also my mentor, was out as him and his wife just recently had a baby. And Shlomo's partner was out. He was uh, in Refresher. Yeah, he was in Refresher the day of. And we had worked together previously a lot. And I would be extra. So we would end up being paired up together on 4-5 Rescue. Okay. So for our listeners, just a quick note. It's fairly uncommon practice to have rescue medics work with non-rescue personnel or at least non-HAZTAC personnel. Sometimes. Normally the priority would be to run a full rescue or full HAZTAC. Correct. Right. Because when we have assignments where you need to deploy rescue medics, you would then have to bring on a second truck to get two rescue medics together. But that didn't happen in this case. So you have worked together in the past. Yes. So you're used to each other's kind of workflow and the way you kind of do things. Yeah. Also, when I was BLS at Station 49, Shlomo was regularly my ALS backup. So I knew him pretty well. I think you actually did rotations on my ambulance a few times. I did. Yeah. When I was in medic school, I did rotations with him and Karen. Oh, nice. So during the time of you two working together, you being the senior medic and rescue medic on top of that, did you bestow any wisdom upon the brand new medic? We had worked together a few times. So like regularly, uh, I try to mentor her as much as possible. I have uh, some more seniority than she does. And I would help her, you know, like some best practices that I had learned over the time of how to do things more efficiently, along with like, you know, how to like look at patients and situations in different in different ways. It was pretty interesting. We, when we would work together, I'd try to pick his brain about different rescue situations, protocols and stuff. The difference between what I can do as a paramedic and what he can do just standing orders wise, what he could do as a rescue medic. 
there's like a decent amount of differences and it's actually pretty interesting. So let's get into the date in question. December 8th, 2022. What was the assignment initially? In a rescue ambulance, we have access to the officer's package of radios. So we have fire ground radios, we listen to fire. I can make my handy talkie radio scan. So I generally have my radio on scan where I'm listening to Queens Fire, Queens Citywide. Sometimes I listen to police radios as well. So I heard a rescue job. I heard Lieutenant Shaughnessy, uh, Hashtag One, get assigned to this assignment. And then every time I hear one of the Hashtag officers get assigned to an assignment, I see who is available in that area. And then I usually work numerically down until I get to myself. And there were no other rescue units available at that time. So we were sitting in our cross street location. I looked over at Kira, I'm like, uh, looks like we're going to the Bronx. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We had discussed this earlier. The Bronx rescue units were all on assignment already and you were probably gonna be the next closest to go. Like Shlomo said, the rescue units monitor multiple frequencies, but a non-rescue ALS and BLS, we only monitor the borough frequency that we're currently working in. Like we work in Queens West, so we monitor the Queens West unit. So a typical ALS or BLS non-rescue wouldn't have been made aware of the situation, the job coming down, because we don't monitor those things typically. Everyone has the ability to monitor multiple radio frequencies, but because rescue themselves are part of special operations and the HASTAC officers, rescue officers, are on citywide, it makes more sense for us to monitor both frequencies for us to be able to kind of see what's happening around all the other boroughs. Yeah, exactly. In terms of how rescue units are dispatched throughout the city, because there are limited resources in terms of rescue and hashtag response, basically rescue and hashtag units are citywide. If there is an assignment, say, in the Bronx and all the other units are being allocated somewhere else, then you could be in Staten Island or Brooklyn and be dispatched all the way to the Bronx. It just happens to be that way sometimes. Yes. Also, due to the amount of resources that were being assigned to this call, we could tell the legitimacy and seriousness of it just based on how many units we had responding. Let's get into it. You arrive on scene. What did you see? Uh, A lot of fire trucks, a few ambulances. Yeah, there was a lot of apparatus there, so obviously we wouldn't be able to stage our ambulance very close. And at that point, did you learn anything about what happened? Not until we got on, like up to the front on scene. I made contact with Lieutenant Shaughnessy and she gave me the rundown. There was more that happened before we got there, but basically two men fell down the elevator, one they had already taken out. Uh, He landed on top and uh, he was with a a BLS ambulance. Then the second one was still trapped underneath. So your priority now became the patient that was under the elevator? Correct, so as we were walking towards the scene itself, we looked inside that ambulance that had the patient, we saw there was providers in the ambulance and then we kept on going to the scene realizing that our priority was still, if there was more patients, still trapped. So when do you get into the headspace of, I'm doing a regular medic job versus now I have to activate myself as a rescue paramedic? I guess that would happen fairly quickly when you have a hashtag officer on scene already. So I get into the headspace as soon as I got the assignment, I I get into that headspace. I start thinking about what information I heard over the radio. We heard that somebody had fell down an elevator shaft. So I'm thinking now we have extra equipment on rescue ambulances that other ALS units don't have, different bags, different tools. We have harnesses for uh, doing rope work and different types of things like that. So in my mind, I'm already like thinking about worst case scenario, like what is the worst possible scenario that could be happening right now? Which tools would I need to take with me to the scene? And that's the mentality of a seasoned rescue medic. 
you have some experience, you've done assignments similar to this before, but Kira, you're two months out of Medic Basic. What's going through your head? A lot. I really like working on the rescue truck, especially with Shlomo. But at that time, my main priority is being a, I'm a supportive position for Shlomo. So when we got on scene, my first thing to ask him was, what do you need from me? What can I do to help you? And he started gearing up. He has a special set of gear that's different from our turnout gear that he wears. And he had to get his harness and everything ready. And he instructed me what equipment that he needed for this job. And I got everything together. Obviously, I put on my PPE. It's different than his. And I got all of his equipment ready that he would possibly need. And I set that up on our stretcher so we could bring it down to the call. So you gather all the equipment and you approach the scene. What was the access to the patient? So the first firefighters who got there on scene, when they found out the patient was underneath the elevator, is they took a ladder to the top of the elevator, and then they put another ladder down and they climbed down to the, underneath the elevator, right? I guess the well, the elevator well. And that's how they got down there. So when they allowed me to go, first thing I tried was to go the same way they did. I made it to the top of the elevator. They had moved the ladder away. And then a few minutes later, they cut a hole in the elevator car itself. And then I was just lowered down. It was one floor's worth of being lowered down. So You were lowered by rope? So you actually had uh, to harness in? Or? By firepower, I'd like to say. So there was a pipe that was about, like, I don't know, a quarter of the way up, like a, a big uh, standpipe down there. So, like, they hand-lowered me down. Okay. The guy below me, like, grabbed my legs. And, like, halfway down, there was, like, a thing to stand on. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't really make too much sense to do the rope thing when it's not terribly far. You could do it in a safe manner. You could just get down there and get access to the patient. Correct. Correct. So, Kira, you didn't go down as no. well. There wasn't space for you, I would imagine. So, from a rescue medic perspective, you utilized her as the anticipator. I tried to. Truth be told, to like communicate to the surface was difficult. There's a lot of tools going on, moving parts, a lot of people in the way. I was able to mostly radio communicate with the HazTac officers, and they would then tell her what I needed. And I was also monitoring the frequency that he was on as well because, you know, those scenes and situations can get pretty chaotic, and he's my partner. We're there as a team regardless, even though we got split up. You know, we're not a full rescue, but we're still a partnership, so it was still, I feel like, my job to make sure that he had whatever he needed. No, that makes sense. Now, Shlomo, can you give me a rundown on the patient presentation when you first got there? So before I was lowered into the elevator well, they told me that when they first got there, the patient was talking to them, and he was saying that he had some shortness of breath. And they asked for some oxygen. We handed them some oxygen. They gave the, the patient some oxygen before we got down there. And when I got down there, uh, I found him supine. He was alert and speaking, a little bit confused. I imagine he hit his head pretty hard. Probably. Five stories, right? Five stories is what we were told. Could you also let our listeners know what precautions you might think about when you're assessing a patient in an environment such as that? When we were talking earlier, you mentioned there was a lot of dust. Yes. In the elevator well, I mean, you never know what's going to be down there. People sneak down there. Sometimes they use it as a bathroom. They throw garbage down there. Possibly there could be needles or any sharp objects, broken glass, all sorts of things like that. There was a lot of dust. Like, it was unpaved, and it was just very dusty. So, like, dust impaction is, a, is a definitely a concern. And so in terms of the injuries that you could distinctly see or uh, you initially assessed from him, which were the most glaring to you? Which were the ones that were not necessarily the worst of them, but maybe distractors initially 
and then you had secondary injuries and such that you had to manage in order. So the biggest distractor almost always is like head injuries. Head injuries bleed a lot, but unless there's an actual skull fracture, are not that dangerous. And then were there other, any other musculoskeletal injuries that you assessed that were possibly a concern down the line? Yes. So as I was evaluating him, touching him was very difficult. Every time I touched him, he would complain about his left shoulder mainly, that it was hurting a lot. I would be concerned about any sort of rib fractures or abdominal injuries. His hips, so his left leg was uh, like shortened and rotated outwards, so I was concerned about hip fracture. And uh, hip fracture not only is painful, but have a lot of bleeding that could be going on inside of it. And uh, obviously, one of my main concerns is any sort of spinal injuries. And since it was going to be an extended operation, uh, did they give you a time frame how long it would take before they might be able to get this individual out? Not initially, but uh, when I started thinking about my medical treatment, down inside the elevator well, there was uh, myself, the medic, and there was two firefighters from uh, special operations companies. I asked them if they had any idea, and they thought it was going to take at least 40 minutes. So I guess you get into the mentality of possibly extricating the patient within that time frame, mitigating their pain, especially if they're going to be extricated. You don't want them to be jostling around in pain, especially if they're going to be extricating. It's already dangerous enough as it is, right? Well, pain management is like really one of the number one things that we do as rescue medics. If I can help somebody relax and not be in pain while the firefighters and the special operations companies are extricating or getting them out, that's really my, my number one concern, right? Keeping them alive and keeping them out of pain. So pain management was the first thing I was concerned about. The next thing I was concerned about was any sort of anxiety the guy might have when we started trying to get him out. And just to let our listeners know, when we're in a situation like this, we do make the decisions about what medications we're going to use, but we do have consultation with other officers, with our on-scene doctors or on-call doctors. So this is a discussion that happens with a multitude of people, so it's not just one person making a decision. It's discussed, and the pros and cons of all things are weighed out before we administer, especially in this kind of environment. So being that the patient is in an austere environment uh, where, you know, there's a lot of things going on, especially because the injury to the head, you have open wounds and everything, I believe in the rescue medic protocols, you do have the option of giving antibiotics. Correct. With a consultation with uh, the five Mary physician, we have the option to give the, the patient antibiotics. We consulted with the five Mary who was on scene by then. He decided that it wasn't a good idea, both because he was worried about the patient having any sort of anaphylactic reaction to it, which in an austere environment could be extra dangerous. He later told me that uh, head injuries, because they're so vascular, there's not the probability of getting an infection, a bacterial infection from it isn't as high. So they could have waited till they got to the hospital and let the doctors there decide. And especially with 40 minute onset time, those kind of considerations can be had, but you have to have the conversation, but you almost eliminate it fairly quickly due to like the extrication time being quite short. I don't know, in my mindset, I, I kind of feel the the use of like antibiotic would be better served for something like an A kit and a long extrication process, like hours versus something that's less than an hour. That's something that's always like a push and pull in EMS. Like for example, we use steroids for asthmas and COPDs, which also have a long onset. But the sooner you start it, the sooner that thing kicks in, right? So, so the sooner you're counteracting the injury or the insult to the body, the faster that's gonna happen. So if I start antibiotics now, and it takes three or four or 12 hours to kick in, that's still 40 minutes to an hour, or however long it takes the hospital to decide that's their treatment protocol to, to kick it in. So to do an initial treatment 
early is uh, even one that has a long onset is still something that we do on a regular basis, something that we think about at least. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, this is where you hear the saying that medicine is a practice, not a science. And this is why we have the consultation when we have all the other people involved who can give their insight, especially those who have more training than us, like the doctors and then the officers as well, even. Uh, it's better to have that kind of conversation, have it quickly, but to have that kind of conversation to make sure we do the best for the patient as quickly and efficiently as possible. You had the majority of the equipment, I would imagine, because he's now under the elevator uh, managing patient care. Mm. Could you see him from where you were? No. He was all the way down in the elevator shaft. I was topside. I only had radio communication with him just by monitoring the frequency that he was on. I would monitor whatever Shlomo was discussing with the Haztag pauses and the Five Mary car. And once I anticipated that they were going to need that or they you know, made the decision, I would either set it up or send it down. Shlomo is a very experienced medic and a very experienced rescue medic. So I trust the uh, treatment modalities that he's choosing in consultation with the bosses in the Five Mary car. Obviously, you said you had the firefighters around you, but were other EMS personnel around you, HASTAC officers, or anything like that? Yeah, there was another ALS crew that had initially responded to the call and another BLS crew. So I was with both of those as well. I want to just touch on the fact that, because uh, you were you started discussing it, I think in medic school, like they always stress the fact that it's you and your partner, that you're always with your partner, never leave yes. your partner, always be with your partner. You're a team. And then when you get to rescue medic school, it's a big shift to be able to start thinking and working independently in the way that you work and how you have to be able to communicate with people who can't see mm -hmm. and don't know what's going on. And then you got to pass messages in a way that they understand and can then react in the way that you want them to understand. That's a big shift in the way that a medic thinks. Yeah, it was works. a very big adjustment for me in my thought process and how to handle a scene, especially as a brand new medic. Normally, you're with not only your partner, but a mentor. So this person you're working with, and they're helping you out, teaching you the ropes and everything. And I'm up topside by myself with the other crews, and my partner's down in the elevator shaft doing his thing. So it was definitely, I needed to adjust my mentality a little bit of how to take on this call and the role that's expected of me. The internship is generally supposed to teach you how to operate in an ALS capacity with a partner generally after that point, after you've kind of finished off your internship. And that's usually when you start transitioning into like the leadership aspect of being a paramedic, where you kind of help take control of scenes and you're the actual resource at that point. But that usually comes way after your internship ends. Yes. That's just kind of like natural progression. Yeah. I'd like to think that uh, my job as a mentor, it's her words, not mine. Mm -hmm. yeah. My job is to, to build her up so she can be the team leader as her internship goes. So like I would let her do as much as possible and let her follow her own thought processes on as many scenes or in as many patients as possible with me only prompting or asking questions about what her thought process is rather than telling her, maybe showing her a few things that are like best practices where I found to be more efficient rather than, hey, watch me do this. Yeah. As a paramedic intern, you're supposed to be running every single call. Like he said, you, you are the team leader and your mentor is supposed to be there if you need something to fall back on. You are in charge of the scene. And then normally if there's like something you want to talk about, you, you discuss it after the call, you know, what we did, what we could have done differently. So let's get back to the patient. You've assessed the patient, you've worked up the patient to a certain degree. Were there any changes throughout that time in terms of their condition? Yes. So the pain management we used definitely diminished his pain. He was no longer 
complaining that everything hurt every time I, I tried to uh, palpate him or evaluate him. But also his mental status was also diminishing as the time was going on. Not to an extent I don't think that was uh, critical because the process of extricating him was moving forward and it was, it was going basically as fast as we thought it could go. But it was something to, to note and something to, be, to care about for later on as we, uh, we got him out. And then came the time of extrication. How was the patient extricated? Well, before that, the elevator suddenly shot up out of the way and was gone. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been underneath an elevator, but for some reason, this had a really big cable. So the elevator moves out of the way, and then they extricate the patient. Right. So the firefighters set up a high point or a point to anchor a rope. I discussed it with the firefighters at that time. And uh, we decided the, the easiest and best way to take him out was to use a reed sleeve which is a, uh, an extrication device that also uh, protects the spine, and you could lift it up on rope, vertical or horizontal. When we were about to load him into the reef sleeve, I actually requested more hands down in the, in the elevator well, because there was only three of us. It was me oh, and the smart. two firefighters. Mm -hmm. I was like, hey, can one of you, two of you jump down to give us assistance? And it was basically like 10 feet to the elevator door or so. So they set up the high point, and we just lifted him and took him out and put him directly on a stretcher. So now they're getting ready to extricate the patient, lift them up, and you were made aware. Yes. So where did you end up? So I was still topside. We had a BLS that was with us. We were going to be transporting in their ambulance. I was aware that the patient was going to be coming up with Shlomo, so I had the BLS set up their stretcher as close as we could get it to the um, elevator door that was on ground level where we were operating. So we set all that up ready in, you know, the correct position to receive the patient and how I, I anticipated him coming out. I anticipated him coming out feet first. So we had all that ready. And then I was ready to go and take the patient into the ambulance and continue treatment and evaluation. Before we, uh, we took the patient to the ambulance, after I got up, uh, we made sure that we just reevaluated everything was still, was still working. The patient... The EKG was connected. Uh, we took like a minute or two just to make sure he was covered. While Shlomo was still in the elevator shaft, I had the stretcher set up with the BLS. I set the monitor up so that we could hook him up to the monitor and get a quick reassessment of his vital signs once we got him topside. And we set everything up, make sure everything's nice and secure and nothing gets pulled or like pushed out of place. And uh, we transferred him over to the ambulance. Once we took the patient into the ambulance, I did have to redress his head that I had anticipated just because there was a lot of patient movement getting him out. It had no hindrance on patient care whatsoever, but I just wanted to make sure the bleeding and his head laceration was controlled. So I just redressed that once we got to the, to the back of the truck. And at that point, you're a team again in the back of this ambulance and you go off to the hospital. Yes. So for your efforts on December 8th, 2022, for this year, 2023, you were awarded both the Christopher J. Prescott Medal. It was your first time going to Medal Day? Correct. Yes. What was that experience like? Overwhelming. Yeah. It's, it's like very awe-inspiring how serious the fire department takes that day and the, the different things we do to earn those medals. And speaking to the other medal recipients, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. You hear a lot of pretty cool stories from the other recipients. You also, uh, this is my, my feelings, my opinion, you, you kind of feel like you don't deserve to be there just because you experienced your own situation. You did what you had to do on your job, and you feel like it's not merit-worthy when you hear these other uh, stories from people, but obviously someone thought it was. <laughs> One guy ran into a building 
with no equipment, just an SCBA and saved a little girl from a fire. I mean. Yeah, it was very cool. But you are the intern paramedic who had to go headfirst into rescue medic scenario world and you crushed it, right? Uh, I guess. It's so hard for first responders in general to take any kind of accolade without <laughs> kind of saying, yeah, but it's my job. Yeah, it is. Because at the end of the day, it, it is my job. And I did what was expected of me, I believe. Um, Shlomo did his job. And most of the time, you don't get recognized for your efforts. And you are right. You, you know, we, we, we're doing our job. We're doing what's expected of us. But it is very nice to... Um, receive that appreciation for doing what you can do. You two had settled into the roles of one being the mentor and one being essentially the inquisitive new medic. You were always ready to train her, always ready to show her some trick, some pearl of wisdom. And Kira, you're always ready to learn something new to get better at your job. So jobs like this, when they happen to come by, you were more than prepared. So that's very, very impressive. So I want to thank Shlomo and Kira for being here and sharing your story and your insight about this incredible assignment. Thanks for having us, Randy. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Rescue Paramedics, we have some previous episodes you can listen in on, episode 80 and episode 28. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Captain Randy Lee. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.